Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 37, Greece Awakens. Am I stretching for a title this week? Yes. But I've got a great title option for the next two, so I'm rolling with it. Last time, I covered the short-lived attempt by Hestius of Miletus to take the reins of Ionian resistance against Persia and carve out his own little kingdom in the Aegean Islands. His star burned bright long enough to take over the island of Chios, but ultimately he encountered a Persian army and was defeated, captured, and impaled, bringing an end to the last of the rebellious Milesians. After his defeat, the Persians continued their campaigns to reconquer the last of the rebellious cities around the Propontis on both the European and Asian sides. From one perspective, the end of the campaign season in 493 was the end of the Ionian Revolt. After all, Ionia was no longer in revolt. But the Persians just kept rolling. Contact with Thrace and Macedon, conquered and vassalized just 20 years earlier, had been disrupted by the war, and Persian control had slipped in Southeast Europe. While it's rarely discussed as a rebellion, the Thracians and Macedonians resisted Persian rule and weren't paying tribute when it returned, which was basically the definition of rebellion stretching back to the early Bronze Age. So in the spring of 492, a fresh-faced young commander was appointed to be general of the Persian army in the west. This was Mardonius, an apparently young relative of the royal family. He's generally understood to be a peer with the future king and current prince, Xerxes, making our new general somewhere in his mid-to-late 20s when he was first appointed. So far, all of our army generals have been somehow tied to the royal family. Satrap Artaphernes, of course, was Darius's own brother, and the three leaders of the land campaigns were all Darius's sons-in-law through unnamed daughters. Mardonius was another son-in-law, married to one of the king's daughters named Artazostra. They are mentioned together in the Persepolis fortification tablets, but this is not his only tie to the royal house. He was also Darius's nephew on his mother's side. Mardonius was the son of an unspecified sister of Darius and Gabrius. If you cast your memories all the way back to the very beginning of Darius's reign, you might remember that Gobrius was not just one of the co-conspirators against Bardia, 
but the original mastermind, according to Herodotus. It was Gobrius, rather than Darius, who started assembling a group of anti-Bardia partisans to stage a coup, and Darius joined later, somewhat usurping the coup itself as well as the throne. The House of Gobrius seems to have been elevated to a position almost above the rest of the Persian nobility after the coup, and it is generally believed that he is represented as Darius's personal spear-bearer in the Behistun inscription, one part right-hand man, one part bodyguard, and one part confidant to the king. A close personal relationship was not the extent of the Gabrius clan's relationship to the royal house, though. Darius himself had married one of Gabrius's daughters and had at least one son with her before he became king. So Mardonius is also Darius's much younger brother-in-law. Meanwhile, Gabrius was married to Darius's sister, Ardushnamuya, whose name is also known from the Persepolis tablets. So Mardonius is not just a brother-in-law, but also Darius's nephew. And, of course, being personally married to Artazostra, Darius's daughter through Artistine, one of Cyrus the Great's daughters, he was not just a brother-in-law and a nephew, but also a son-in-law to King Darius all at once. Incest is a trick. Oh, and just by virtue of being a noble in an aristocratic society, they were probably cousins of some sort. So this Mardonius guy is well-connected. He's a first cousin and probably personal friend or classmate of some sort to Prince Xerxes, and all of the myriad connections to Darius I I just went through. All of that probably goes a long way to explain how this guy, barely the 25 years old needed for full-time military service, is the leading commander of the Western Front in 492. He's just about as high up in the Persian nobility as you can get without being a royal. If he had been anybody else, he might have commanded a Satabom company of a hundred men, or a Hazarabom regiment of a thousand. Given how highly ranked his family was, maybe a Bivarabom or division of ten thousand in a large invading army. But placing this highly ennobled, yet very young relative in command of the full invasion force for Eastern Europe, seems like it should have been a gamble. Maybe he had already proved himself capable in the Ionian campaigns, or maybe his appointment was the product of politics playing out at court back in Persia. As we'll see in some upcoming episodes, there are more than enough power players to create some factions within the palace, and Gabrius would certainly have been at the forefront of at least one of them. No matter the circumstance, though, Mardonius, the son of Gabrius, was at the head of an army massing in southern Anatolia in the spring of 492. He sent his land force north to the Hellespont, where they were to rendezvous with the fleet. Mardonius himself accompanied the Persian fleet built back up to its full strength of 600 ships as it left from the naval base in Cilicia. From Cilicia, he sailed up the Ionian coast, but his progress must have been slow, because starting in northern Caria, he started establishing some major political changes in the former rebel cities. The Tyrannoi, the Greek word for tyrants, had just been restored to their cities the previous year, 
as promised in the settlements at the end of the Ionian Revolt. Mardonius saw to it that their return was short-lived. From northern Caria, through Ionia, and up into Aeolus, Mardonius abolished the tyrannies and instituted democracies, basically restoring the government they had all used during the revolt, on the condition that they still paid allegiance and tribute to Persia. And I just have to say, I really hope he told Artifernes that this was his plan first, because it seems like a lot of work had just been put into restoring the status quo. So was Mardonius just making arbitrary pit stops to exercise his newfound command? Probably not. It's much more likely that he was just the messenger of policies developed higher up by Artifernes or even Darius himself. There are so many possibilities here. Maybe the Persians were making this concession to the Greek cities in order to bring them back into the fold. Maybe they no longer trusted the tyrants anyway after the rebellions of Aristagoras and Histias. Maybe this was a ploy to entice the democratic factions in mainland Greek cities into siding with the Persians if they were to invade. It was quite probably a little bit of everything. Whatever it was, Herodotus says that Otanes, the conspirator, was the original mastermind of the scheme, maybe just to remind us that the Seven were still around back in Susa. With democracies in place for the Ionians, Mardonius continued on his way north where he and the fleet met their corresponding army and ferried them across the Hellespont to Europe. The army marched up the Chersonis while the fleet sailed around the west and met them on the southeast coast of Thrace. From there, they seem to have pushed along the coast parallel to one another, maybe diverging around the city of Abdera or somewhere in the Chalcidides, those three narrow peninsulas on the northeastern side of Greece that look a bit like a hand reaching down into the Mediterranean. While the land army was moving through western Thrace, the fleet turned south, and attacked Thassos, that same island which effectively resisted Histias in the last episode. They had resisted the invading tyrant, but were no match at all for the larger Persian invasion force, and surrendered without a fight. The fleet oversaw the incorporation of the new island into the empire, and then sailed west to the city of Akanthos on the northwest corner of the Chalcidiceys. From there, the fleet was supposed to swing around the southwest and presumably head up the Thermaic Gulf, probably to rejoin the land army around the small city of Thera, which would eventually become the site of Thessaloniki about 175 years later. That only happened for half the fleet. As they were rounding Mount Athos at the southeast corner of the Chalcidiceys, according to Herodotus, 300 ships were wrecked in a storm. Even if that number is accurate, they probably didn't all sink, but many must have been damaged. While the fleet was conquering Thassos and fighting the weather, the army had retaken the Thracian coastline and moved on to Macedon. They seemed to have taken the semi-Greek kingdom without much of a fight, but when they entered, they alerted King Alexander I that there was a new status quo. Previously, he had been a vassal forced to host Persian overseers at his court. 
his tribute had been negotiated between his father and Megabazos when the Persians first came to the Macedonian capital of Pella. Now he was told that his country would be assessed and assigned a royal tax burden. Alexander and the Argead dynasty would remain in control of the country, but they were subject to the Persian king and probably subordinate to the satrap who was supposed to be installed in Europe when all was said and done. So when Mardonius and the fleet finally came straggling into southern Macedon, it was at least supposedly friendly territory. But unfortunately for our young commander, the hits just wouldn't stop coming. Evidently, inland Thrace and Macedonian hill country hadn't been fully subjugated. It seems possible that the plan had been to secure the western flank in Macedon and then use that as a staging ground for more inland conquests. While still encamped in Macedonian territory, Mardonius's army was attacked by a Thracian tribe called the Birgoi. They took the Persians by surprise in a brutal attack. Mardonius himself was wounded. Despite that injury, Herodotus tells us that Mardonius and the army remained in Macedon and continued to carry out their campaigns in Thrace. The Birgoi and other tribes in the area were subdued before Mardonius and the bulk of the invasion force returned to Anatolia and the rest of the empire. Even if further campaigns had been planned in Thrace or into Greece, that was probably the most prudent call Mardonius could have made. The surprise attack had damaged both the army and their general. Half the fleet was still in shambles in the Chalcidiches, and a strategic retreat seems like the smart move. But frankly, this phase of operations seems like it had been successful overall. Herodotus frames it as a failed attempt to invade Greece, where the army never made it all the way to the Greek frontier. But all of the territory first conquered by Megabazos was back under Persian control, and Persian control was actually stronger than ever before. Even if Mardonius was supposed to carry out further conquests in late 492 or the campaign season of 491, the fallout of the Ionian Revolt was theoretically all cleaned up, and they even had the strategically important island of Thassos in the empire now. That's all pretty good. Of course, Thassos was almost immediately accused of plotting its own revolt, which seems pretty crazy given that they had just given their unconditional surrender without any resistance. Maybe they took a couple of months to hoard supplies, or maybe it was a false accusation, who knows. For my money, it was the latter. According to Herodotus, Darius was informed of a possible Thassian revolt by the city of Abdera, also Persian subjects, but regional rivals to the Thassians. Darius ordered the island to tear down their fortifications and send their fleet to Abdera, or face the Persian military as a test of their loyalty. The Thassians complied, and Persian tax assessors came to the island to institute a regular tax on their very profitable gold mines. So that's it, right? Ionian politics have been reformed and settled. Cyprus is back to normal, and Persian control reaches all the way to western Macedon. The Ionian Revolt has to be over. Not quite. There are still two belligerents that have gone unpunished. And one of them 
was even a rebel under Persian law. Remember back to episode 32, the mainland Greek cities of Athens and Eritrea joined the Ionians in their attack on Sardis, only to tuck tail and run after being brutally defeated at Ephesus. In the same episode, I discussed how the Athenians had previously submitted earth and water, tokens of political submission, to the Persians in exchange for military aid against Sparta. But that war with Sparta never came, and the Athenian Popular Assembly disparaged the envoys who had submitted to Persia. The incident is unimportant in the narrative built by Herodotus. He just kind of ignores it after explaining what I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. Happened. But flip to the Persian point of view, and Athens has actually been in open revolt for years, and the Eritreans are foreign backers of rebel armies. Even if Darius and his advisors were 100% conscious of the political reality, it was still a matter of principle to punish and subjugate the Eritreans and Athenians. And I think it's really crucial to understand here, the Persians had never lost territory at this point. Everyone who had ever submitted to them was still part of the Persian Empire. Athens was spitting in the face of an incredible winning streak. Thus, the military plans to deal with the last of the remaining Yona rebels across the Aegean were continued over the course of the next two years. The playing field was different now, though. The Athenians, theoretical rebels though they may be, were well-organized and wealthy, unlike Thrace or Macedon, and completely surrounded by unconquered territory, unlike the Ionian cities. The fleet obviously had to be rebuilt, but a larger army had to be assembled as well. The remnants of Mardonius's force could not have been sufficient. 
In addition to Athens and Eritrea themselves, the other Greek cities had to be accounted for. A land route from Macedon would necessitate marching through, subjugating, and vassalizing all of the polis in northern Greece. An attack by sea would need to first take power in all of the Aegean islands that were still independent between the Ionian and Attic coasts. Ultimately, Darius and the Persians would opt to keep both options open, but the year of 491 BCE saw the first significant lull in Greco-Persian conflict in eight years. While a new fleet was constructed in Phoenicia and Cilicia, with both warships and troop transports to expedite the movement of the land army, Persian messengers were dispersed throughout Greece, a land known to the inhabitants as Hellas, where the people called themselves Hellenes. In a fairly famous passage written by Herodotus, he says, After this, Darius tried to test the Hellenes to find out whether they intended to wage war against him or surrender to him. He sent out heralds in all directions throughout Hellas and ordered them to ask for earth and water for the king. And while he sent some heralds to Hellas, he sent others to his tribute-paying cities along the coast with orders to build warships and vessels to transport horses. So the cities began to construct these ships. On the mainland, many of the Hellenes visited by the heralds gave what the Persians asked, as did all of the islanders to whom the heralds had come with their request. So many of the mainland cities submitted, especially in northern regions like Thessaly, where they were already under threat from Persian invasion out of Macedon. The Persian messengers that went further south were less fortunate, namely those who went to Athens and Sparta. According to Herodotus, in a later chapter of his histories, the Athenians threw their Persian herald into a pit used to execute criminals, and the Spartans drowned theirs in a well, thus giving Darius the earth and water he demanded. Now that incident isn't mentioned at this point in Herodotus's own narrative, and it seems much too poetic that two separate cities would independently orchestrate this gory metaphor. It seems much more likely that the ambassadors were just executed in some other way, at least in Sparta. Why waste a good well? It's also entirely possible that the Spartans didn't kill theirs at all, and that story was made up after Sparta was more involved in Persian politics than they had been up to this point. Now, this was tantamount to sacrilege, as ambassadors were a protected class across the ancient Mediterranean and Near East. It would certainly have further angered the Persians. Of course, Athens was already marked for devastation, but this is really the first time the Spartans would have appeared on the Persian radar as a hostile territory, that is, if they really did kill their ambassador. But this is far from the only way the two leading cities of southern Greece were resisting the Persian diplomatic advance on their country in 491. They were also using it as an opportunity to advance their own internal causes. One of the islands that gave earth and water to the Persians that year was Aegina, one of the Saronic islands that sits between Attica and the Peloponnese, just south of Corinth. 
Aegina was a historic economic and military rival with Athens, despite being a much smaller polis overall. When the Aegonidans surrendered, the Athenians promptly sent a delegation to reprimand them for betraying all of Greece and plotting to attack Athens alongside the Persians. That latter point was probably accurate, and nobody had any doubts that the Persians were gutting straight for Athens. The first point is interesting, though, because it's really the first time we hear about an idea of collective Greece, which the Greeks themselves called Hellas. There had always been a shared Greek or Hellenic identity. Greeks calling themselves Hellenes, they shared holy sites, language, religion, festival celebrations, sporting events, military tactics, clothing, and other customs. They were very clearly a single culture, but there was never any political unity. The Greek world was one of thousands of city-states, all competing against their neighbors. That's what makes accusations of betraying Hellas so strange. On one hand, it's an accusation of committing treason against a political identity that did not exist and never had. On the other, it's almost more of an accusation of ideological and cultural betrayal. The Aegonidans had betrayed their shared cultural identity, according to Athens. Of course, in 491 BC, this was mostly rhetoric that allowed Athens to browbeat their rivals, but it was the beginning of a philosophy that would develop over the next decade and spread throughout Greece. Athens, apparently still trying to maintain positive relations with the Spartans, despite their near-conflict 20 years earlier, sent word to the Lacedaemonians to get their assistance against the Aegonidans. We've met King Cleomenes of Sparta a few times now, and he was the one who came to oblige the Athenian request. He led the Spartan army to Aegina and attacked, but he was repulsed, though not without taking a few hostages. He exchanged the hostages with Athens in exchange for payment and returned to Sparta, all of this under the pretense of punishing Aegina for joining the Persian Empire. In a way, this was the first Spartan attack on Persian territory, though there were no Persians there to back up that claim. Herodotus takes this as an opportunity to go down a very deep rabbit hole on Spartan history and politics, which I will try to avoid here because there will be an episode about Sparta, like episode 32 was about Athens, once Sparta really enters into our narrative. To give the short version, Sparta had two kings supposedly descended from ancient brothers. One was in charge of leading the army and making military decisions, while his co-king was in charge of domestic and religious affairs. There's a bit more to it, but that's the basics. We happen to only encounter them in odd years in the history of Persia, which is why we keep meeting Cleomenes in his year as military king. His co-king was Demeritus, and apparently these two did not get along. Demeritus accused Cleomenes of an illegal invasion of Aegina to try and get him deposed by the Spartan council of elders known as the Ephors, in favor of a more preferable heir. Cleomenes retaliated by conspiring with one of Demaratus's cousins, named Leotychidas, to reveal that Demaratus was actually the product of his mother's previous marriage, 
and thus not a true heir to the Spartan throne at all. Upon hearing these accusations, Demaratus fled into exile at the Persian court, while Leotychidas became the new co-king. A few years later, the details of Cleomenes' scheming became public, and he also fled, but was dragged back in chains by his half-brothers. Cleomenes subsequently committed suicide, thus elevating one of those half-brothers as his replacement. That brother was named Leonidas, as in, that Leonidas. But before that could happen, the incident at Aegina spiraled into a mini-war while the Persians were still building up their invasion force. Aegina first called on Sparta to make amends and get their captives back. When that didn't go as planned, they called on Argos, the traditional rival of Sparta, to assist them, and the Argives went to war with Sparta while Aegina launched a naval attack on Athens. The whole time, the Persians were still sending messengers to Athens, reminding everyone that the former tyrant Hippias would love to come back and take charge of the situation if they would only let him in. So between Sparta and Athens... The Persian diplomatic campaign of 491 provided ample opportunity for petty politics, but when the spring of 490 rolled around, it was back to business as usual. That is to say, massive Persian armies and fleets stomping on Greek cities. With Mardonius injured and not nearly as successful as he might have been, Darius appointed two new commanders. One, was Artaphernes the son of Artaphernes. This was the son of the more familiar satrap of Lydia, and thus one of Darius's nephews. Perhaps, like Mardonius, we're seeing a conscious effort to train the next generation of Persian leaders with these campaigns in the Aegean. If that's the case, the existing Persian leadership learned from their mistake with Mardonius and appointed a more experienced co-commander, Dottis the Mede, our first Median general in quite a while, actually. Dottis is an interesting figure. One of the Persepolis tablets mentions that Dattia was returning from Sardis to Persepolis with a letter for the king in the 11th month of the 27th year under Darius. That would be in late January or early February 494 BCE. This Dattia could very well be Herodotus's Dottis, in which case his presence in Sardis in late 495 may imply that he was one of the great king's eyes on the ground during the Ionian Revolt. Dottis was also known in the Greek world for his ties to Greek institutions. He made offerings at the sanctuary of Apollo on the island of Delos. According to a later chronicle, he also made offerings to Athena, at the city of Lindos. An Athenian nobleman and political leader named Aristides was noted for being a compatriot of Dottis. Even Dottis's name worked its way into Greek culture with words like Dottismos and Aristophanes' reference to the Song of Dottis. Both expressions seem to refer to a barbarian foreigner's attempt to speak Greek, which Dottis was noted for. It seems that Dottis was the Persian military's foremost expert in Greek affairs, and might have been a Philhellene, a foreign lover of Greek culture. 
With this apparently impressive resume, he seems like the obvious choice to lead the first major foray into the Greek mainland. So Dottis and Artaphernes, the younger, set out in spring of 490, with their fleet and army both traveling by sea. They went north from Cilicia to Samos, and then turned west out into the Aegean. Their first stop was Naxos, where all of this had started in the first place. The island had successfully resisted a Persian attack nine years earlier, but this assault was a different beast altogether. This was a war fleet intended for a sustained campaign all the way across the Aegean. Naxos fell quickly and was burned, sacked, and subjugated in short order. As they approached Delos, the Delians were preparing to evacuate their island because of what had happened on Naxos. But Dottis actually secured that next conquest with diplomacy, making a large offering at the aforementioned Shrine of Apollo. Next was the island of Kerastos, which did not surrender and was pillaged and conquered by force as a consequence. Then came Euboea, the island of the Eritreans. Euboea is actually a large island just off the coast of the Greek mainland, but if you're not familiar with Greek geography, you may not have even realized it was there when you looked at a map. It is so close to the mainland that you have to look really closely to realize that they are actually separate. Regardless, it was the last island of the Persian agenda. The invasion fleet split into three groups. Presumably, Artaphernes and Datis each took one, and some sub-commander took the other. They all made landfall at the smaller cities of Temenos, Chiorii, and Aegilea, seizing those key locations before marching on Eritrea itself. Some wealthy Eritreans had fled in advance when they heard that the Persians were on their way, but for the most part, everyone was still in the city. Some Athenian ships had come to try and aid their allies, but when they saw how divided the city was between pro-surrender and pro-resistance parties, they knew that Eritrea was doomed and sailed home. The Persians invested the walls of Eritrea with a brutal siege. According to Herodotus, it was a non-stop assault for six days until Eritrea broke on the seventh day and the gates were opened by pro-surrender partisans. The Persians plundered the city and its temples, burning several of them before declaring that the city had been properly conquered. With Eritrea defeated and secure, Datis and Artaphernes turned their sights on Attica and Athens. According to Herodotus, they conferred with Hippias, the former tyrant, about the best invasion route. On his recommendation, the Persian army entered the Greek mainland for the first time on a coastal plain, about 42.2 kilometers or 26.2 miles northeast of Athens itself. And it's there, and camped on the plains of Greece for the very first time, that I'll leave off the narrative for today. Until next time, if you want more information about the podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you will find my bibliography, complete family trees of the Achaemenid dynasty, and the support page where you can see all of the ways to financially support the show, like my Patreon, and links to all of the affiliate products that I advertise for. 
You can also support the show for free just by letting people know about it. Spread the word and let everyone you can think of know that the History of Persia podcast is out here. It's the best way for the show to grow. I also always really appreciate seeing your reviews and feedback on whatever podcast platform you choose, whether that's Lyceum, Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts, or what have you. And as always, thank you so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.